Today we're going to continue on looking at our Advent series, the theme of joy and uh, a terrific song in the scriptures, Mary's Song of Joy. Before we do, I want to just share an opening story with you. It's one of the most famous Christmas stories uh, ever told, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, written in 1864. Somebody actually told me the anniversary of that, uh, that writing is this next Tuesday. So I don't, know, I don't know how the years add up, but anyway, uh, some Dickens fan out there. But uh, The Christmas Carol is a famous Christmas story, maybe second only to the very nativity story itself. And if you're familiar uh, with The Christmas Carol, A Christmas Carol, uh, set in Victorian England, and it centers around the story of this mighty Miserly, greedy, grumpy curmudgeon named Ebenezer Scrooge. And uh, Ebenezer Scrooge is notorious in his community for hoarding his wealth and just his inhospitability. And uh, just his uh, lack of generosity, no Christmas spirit. In fact, his, uh, his famous words at Christmas time are bah humbug, right? And uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, he goes to bed one evening, and he's visited by his old business partner, Jacob Marley, the spirit of Jacob Marley, who is in bondage. He's in chains. He's shackled in fetters. And uh, Jacob Marley comes to Scrooge and, and tells him that he has been destined in the spirit realm to wander the earth. Uh, through the centuries because of his own lack of generosity and inhospitality during his lifetime. And Marley warns Scrooge, he says, Scrooge, if, if you don't change your ways, you're destined for the same fate. And then that evening, three other spirits come and visit Ebenezer Scrooge, the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, the ghost of Christmas future. And these three ghosts take Ebenezer on this journey and show him uh, really the error of his ways by, by reminding him of what Christmas was when he was a child, when he was a young man, and by showing him how others in his present day are celebrating and rejoicing, even with little means, celebrating Christmas. And then the ghost of Christmas future takes him into the, the future when Ebenezer is, is dead and he's in the grave and he realizes that nobody's there to mourn his passing. Nobody's there to, to inherit all of the riches he had been hoarding over his life. All of that money, all of his greed accumulated for nothing. And Scrooge wakes up the next morning and he realizes he's been given a second chance. And this is where the story of A Christmas Carol is so powerful because it's really a story of redemption. It's, it's the story of how this, this greedy, wretched, miserly old man is given a second chance at life, a second chance to, to celebrate Christmas. And Scrooge then spends the next day sharing his wealth with others and joining in the Christmas celebrations and, and has this whole transformation that takes place in his life. And it's a great story, and it's a story that has resonated with people through the generations because the reality is we can all relate to, to Ebenezer Scrooge in different ways. And we can certainly all relate to the joy of redemption and the opportunity of being given a second chance. And, and Dickens in The Christmas Carol, while this story wasn't a biblical story by any means, the themes in this story were certainly rooted in a biblical worldview. In particular, this story of redemption and God offering the world a second chance. And we're going to see this theme of redemption once again today as we look to this great song of Mary. Mary's song in Luke 1, 46 through 55. 
Mary's song is her own song of redemption. It's a song of rejoicing. It's a song Mary sang as she recognized the blessing that God had given her in announcing that she would be the means of bringing the Messiah into the world. It's a song of rejoicing as she recognized her own salvation in God and what he had done for her. And so let's take a look at this great song and let this song be part of our own celebration of joy this Christmas season. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 46. Now Mary again is responding to the angelic messenger who has just come telling her that she is going to be the means by which the Messiah comes into the world. Mary responds to this good news. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm and scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Here we read Mary's song of rejoicing, a song based in her recognition of the blessing of redemption. When we think of that word rejoicing and, and what that means for us in our own lives this Christmas season, friends, do you understand what the word rejoicing means? To rejoice means to return to the source of your joy. I'm rejoicing. I'm returning to the source of my joy. And Mary understood that the source of her joy was her Savior, God in heaven, who had given her these abundant promises, these incredible blessings, and shown himself faithful to her. And so Mary rejoices. And friends, really, that's part of the key for us this Christmas season to experience joy in our own hearts is we too need to join with Mary in rejoicing returning to the source of our joy. And this song goes a long way in helping us to, to, to do that, to rejoice. Here in this song of rejoicing, we see Mary rejoicing in praise for three reasons. Number one, she rejoices in praise for her salvation. She rejoices because of what God had done for her in her salvation. You know, I'll never forget the day when my wife came and told me she was pregnant for the first time with our son, Caleb. You know, those of you who are our parents, you know the, the thrill, the joy of hearing that good news. And I remember when Kim came and said, you know, Jason, I'm pregnant. And I was just like, it was awesome, right? Like we were so excited and we were looking forward to that. We were anxious. And, and now God had blessed us with this baby that was growing in her womb. And as the weeks went by, you know, you could start to feel him kick. And, you know, then we had the ultrasound and we saw the image, right? And we, we were so looking forward with great joy to the arrival of our, our child. And you know, you think about that experience for those of you who have been through it as parents. And then we look to Mary's example, right? And, and can you imagine the joy and the emotions that must have been going through Mary, right? This, this unwed teenage girl 
And, and I can imagine there was some anxiousness and worry and, you know, wondering what exactly was going on. But there was probably this incredible joy. Well, not probably, there was. She, she sings this whole song of rejoicing upon hearing this good news. Well, what was the news? If you have your Bibles, go over to verses 30 to 33. The angel comes to Mary. And in verse 30, the angel says to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Man, what, what an announcement of pregnancy, right? Like here Mary finds out not only is she going to give birth miraculously, but she is going to give birth to the promised Messiah, the one who will sit on David's throne, the one who will reign forevermore. And I can only imagine the incredible joy that she must have experienced in that moment. And that joy is what brought forth this song from Mary's spirit, from her soul. This song is historically known as the Magnificat. You may have heard that term before. Magnificat. It's a Latin term. In fact, it comes from the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible. And uh, it's the very first line of Mary's song. Magnificat is where this term comes from. Magnificat anima mea dominum. My soul magnifies the Lord. Now, what exactly is Mary saying here? When she declares, my soul magnifies the Lord. You know, when we think of magnification, we typically think of enlarging something, right? Like using a magnifying glass or, or a microscope, right? We're going to enlarge something so that we can, we can see it more clearly. But friends, that's not the kind of magnification that Mary's talking about. When Mary says her soul magnifies the Lord, the Greek word there is megalino, and that word has this connotation of causing something to be held in greater esteem. So, so you're enlarging it, but it's really about enlarging it in sense of holding it in even greater esteem. And so when Mary declares her joyful praise to the Lord, he, she isn't making God bigger as if that was even possible. No, what Mary's saying here is that her vision of God has been enlarged. Her understanding of God has been enlarged. And because her vision of God has increased, so too has Mary's worship. You see, Mary is simply bringing the worship of her heart into alignment with the reality of who God is and what is appropriate for his greatness and majesty. My soul magnifies the Lord. She's bringing her heart into alignment with God in his incredible glory. And what was it that she heard? What was it that she understood that caused her to magnify the Lord? Well, let's read again verses 47 and 48. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Mary recognizes three things here that cause her to magnify the Lord. Her, her joy was rooted in three great realities. Number one, Mary recognized her own need for a Savior and that God was the source of her salvation. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. 
Mary acknowledged, I need a savior. And God is the source of my salvation. Secondly, Mary confesses here her lowly status in comparison to the holiness and majesty of God. Friends, Mary was under no illusions about who she was and who God was. Mary says he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Mary knew that she was nothing in comparison to the holy God of Israel. And yet God had looked upon her and her humble estate. And blessed her. Mary then thirdly acknowledges here the unique blessing that was hers because of this special call on her life. God had chosen her out of all the women in the world to to be the one who would give birth to the Messiah, the Savior, the King who would sit on David's throne and reign forever and ever. And Mary, as a result of this, recognizes the blessing this is, and she declares, From now on, all generations will call me blessed. You know, I read these words of Mary here, and I can't help but think, what an incredible young woman this was, right? I mean, here was this, she was just a teenager, likely, likely a teenage girl. But you understand the depth of wisdom and maturity to recognize what God had done and the promises that he had fulfilled and the blessings that he had bestowed upon her. We, we see Mary then over, overflowing in praise, rejoicing as a result of all these things. And you know, friends, I think what a model for all of us this Christmas season. As Mary recognizes the joy of her salvation, it is our joy overflowing in the very same way. But you know, when I think about Mary, I think Mary would be shocked at what many in our world have done with her legacy. You see, today all over the world, you can observe millions of people venerating Mary and praying to Mary and putting their trust in Mary. I'll never forget one of my trips down to Guatemala visiting the the large cathedral in the center of Antigua, Guatemala, witnessing an elderly old Guatemalan lady on her knees, on her bare knees, crawling on the rough cobblestone floor of the cathedral, crawling to the altar of Mary, where she bowed before Mary, praying to Mary, putting her hope in Mary. Friends, none of this is biblical. The Catholic Church also teaches about Mary that she was sinless, that she is the gate of heaven. She is our co-redeemer, our our mediatrix, our advocate, the queen over all things. Again, friends, this is all man-made tradition, and Mary herself would have rejected all of it. This isn't the portrayal we see of Mary in Scripture. What does the Bible teach us about Mary? What's the reality about Mary? Is Mary a woman worthy of our admiration? Absolutely. Is Mary a woman worthy of our emulation? Definitely, right? I mean, Mary is the model of a Proverbs 31 woman. She was a virtuous woman, a woman of faith, a woman of trust. But friends, please understand, Mary was as much a sinner in need of a Savior as you and I are. She knew it, God knew it, and her son Jesus knew it. In fact, look what Jesus himself said when someone sought to give praise to Mary. In Matthew, or I'm sorry, in Luke 11, Jesus has been teaching, and, and one of his followers yells out to Jesus. A woman in the crowd raised her voice and says to Jesus, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But Jesus said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. 
Friends, Jesus didn't point people to Mary. No, Jesus pointed people to God and the truth of God's word. That's where our hope is found. And so we need to recognize this morning, friends, Mary is not an object of devotion. She's an example of devotion. And here in her song, Mary joyfully declares, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. What an example of joy-filled praise for us this Christmas season. But Mary doesn't just rejoice and praise for her salvation. Mary also rejoices and prays for our salvation. Mary recognizes that what God is doing is not just about her, but it's about generations of people to come. What is Christmas all about? The answer to that question is found in verse 50. Mary goes on in her song. She says, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, what does it mean to fear God? We hear that term throughout Scripture in a number of places. What does it mean to fear God? Well, friends, at its most basic level, to fear God is to actively put your faith, trust, and hope in Him. Mary says that His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. To fear God is to actively put your faith, hope, and trust in Him. And we see this kind of the fear of the Lord all throughout the scriptures from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We see, for example, this, this fear of the Lord in the example of Abraham, right? When God told Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac, your only son, the son of blessing, the son of promise, right? And Abraham, by faith, actively puts his trust in God. He goes to sacrifice his son and God says, Abraham, stop. And he provides a lamb instead and he says, Abraham, now I know that you fear God because Abraham actively trusted and hoped that God would provide a substitute. We see this fear of God, this fear of the Lord when David, the young shepherd boy, walks into the valley to face down the giant Goliath, actively putting his faith, hope, and trust in God. We see this fear of the Lord in Daniel, right, who we studied last year. Daniel, who stands before the most powerful man in the world, King Nebuchadnezzar, and actively puts his faith, hope, and trust in God and says, Nebuchadnezzar, I don't care what you do, but I will never bow down and worship your idol. We see this act of faith, hope, and trust in the New Testament and in the example of Peter, right, who steps out of the boat onto the waters with his eyes on Jesus, actively putting his faith and hope and trust in Jesus. We see it in the Apostle Paul who would take the message of the gospel all throughout the known world at that time in faith in hope and trust in spite of persecution, in spite of dangers and trials and tribulations, right? That's what Mary is talking about. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation, to all who will actively put their faith and trust and hope in him for their salvation. Now, friends, that should sound very familiar to you because that's the essence of the message of the gospel, the good news. The good news of Christianity, the good news of the scriptures is that through our active faith and trust and hope in Jesus, we too can be saved. 
Remember, we talked about last week, faith for the Christian is not blind. It's not a leap into the dark hoping something's there to catch us. It's not wishful thinking. It's not hoping something's true. No, Christian faith is about actively putting our faith, hope, and trust in Jesus. It's a confidence in God and his promises. And one of those areas where we exercise this faith is in the very nature of our salvation, trusting in the promises of God for our salvation. The Apostle Paul describes this like this for us in the New Testament, passages like Romans 5.1. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified, again, that word means to be made right with our creator God. We have been justified by what? By faith actively trusting in Jesus. We are justified by faith, right? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on in the book of Galatians. He clarifies this even further, Galatians 2.16. Paul says, yet we know that a person is not justified. They're not made bright by works of the law, but through what? Faith. Faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So Paul here again is explaining justification being made right with God is a gift of God that we receive by actively putting our trust in Jesus. If it's not clear enough for you, Paul goes on and makes it even more clear. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace, now what is grace? Grace is a free gift. Grace is something that's given freely that you don't deserve, but it's given to you anyway. God has given us a free gift. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Faith in who? Faith in Jesus, right? Actively putting our trust in Jesus. Now again, this is a gift of grace. You don't deserve it. Okay? You're all on Santa's naughty list this year. Okay? You're all on the naughty list, and you all deserve coal in your stockings on Christmas morning. Okay? But God, in his amazing grace, in spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion against him, God has offered us an incredible gift, the gift of new life through his son, Jesus Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through what? Through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're saved by grace through faith. We're made right with God because of the gift of Jesus Christ, actively putting our trust in Jesus. And once we are saved by grace through faith, God's spirit comes and lives within us and then inspires us and empowers us to do good works as the fruit of our salvation, not the means of our salvation. That's a hugely important distinction to understand this morning. Three weeks ago, I was over in Maui, Hawaii, teaching for Youth with a Mission. And I was teaching there on, uh, on the counterfeits, the non-Christian cults and religions of the world. Groups that claim to be Christian, but are Jesus plus kinds of religion, right? These are groups like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. They claim to believe in Jesus. They can't claim to have faith in Jesus, but it's Jesus plus. It's Jesus plus your good works. It's Jesus plus your membership in our organization. It's Jesus plus your proving of your worthiness to God, right? It's a Jesus plus kind of thing. Understand, friends, anytime 
time you cross paths with anyone who says Jesus plus, you are now no longer in the center of the biblical gospel. You have now moved out into the realm of heresy. Okay? Jesus plus anything else is not the gospel, not the good news, not the message of Christianity, not the message of Christmas. And so I was teaching these students there uh, at this mission school, YWAM, uh, about uh, the difference between true Christianity in these religions that are teaching a Jesus plus kind of a thing. Well, some of my students were down in one of the local towns, Paia, uh, and they were, uh, after, after class one afternoon, they were out witnessing, sharing their faith with people, and, and uh, they came across two Mormon missionaries. And in the course of their conversation with these two Mormon missionaries, these Mormon missionaries said to these students, they said, wait a minute, why are you guys attacking us for doing good works? Don't you know your, your Bible says, James 2.26, that faith without works is dead? Well, these students, they came back to me in class the next day, and they said, you know, Jason, we were, we were kind of stumped. We, we weren't really sure. I mean, they, they quoted scripture, faith without works is dead, right? And they were arguing that we need to do good works plus our faith. And so we shared with the students that morning, and this is something that we all need to understand, when groups like the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses twist scripture like that, that's exactly what they're doing. They're misapplying that passage. James does say faith without works is dead. But in light of what we learned throughout the rest of the scripture, that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. However, as Paul tells us, we were saved by grace through faith for good works, right? And so again, it's not the good works that save us, but the good works are the fruit of our salvation, it's going to be the after effects, the, what, what, what flows out of our salvation. So we're not putting our hope in works. We're putting our hope in faith in Jesus alone to save us. But that then will produce good works in our lives. In fact, look what Jesus himself said about this issue. Some of Jesus' disciples came to Jesus. They said, Jesus, hey, what are the works that we need to do to please God? And what does Jesus say? John 6, 28. Then Jesus said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus, what are the works we need to do to please God? Jesus' answer was, this is it. Believe in him whom he has sent. Believe in Jesus. Put your faith and hope and confidence and trust in Jesus. Friends, that's the message of biblical Christianity. Now, with this understanding in place, let's go back to Mary's song, verses 51 and 53 through 53. Listen to what Mary says here. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Friends, I hope you're paying attention to God's word here. Because once again, Mary emphasizes that if you're banking on your sufficiency, strength, or success to save you, if you think any of these things are going to impress God, my friends, you're going to be sorely disappointed. God's mercy can only be received by those of humble estate, by those who are hungry. Now that should sound familiar to us because we spent the first eight weeks of the fall studying the Beatitudes, the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Those blessed attitudes, right? Those attitudes believers should be, right? What, what, what is the fruit of our salvation? The Beatitudes. And how do we experience the fruit of our salvation? Well, Jesus tells us, right? Who are the blessed? 
Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Friends, isn't it interesting that Mary, 30 years before Jesus, foreshadowed the very essence of the gospel here in her song of rejoicing? Mary says that he has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty. He's exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. Mary's talking the Beatitudes here. And we shouldn't be surprised because the same Holy Spirit that brought to us the message of Jesus is at work here inspiring Mary's song. Mary understood the essence of the gospel, that it's only the humble, it's only those who come to God recognizing their own need for a Savior who will experience exaltation. And so, friends, the most important question you could ponder this Christmas season is simply this. Have you, like Mary, humbled yourself before the Lord? Have you acknowledged your need for a Savior? Do you know the joy of having received God's free gift of salvation? And see, the good news is you can. You can know that joy if you too will actively put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the heart of the Christmas message. We see Mary rejoicing for a third reason, though, in our passage. Mary ends her song, the Magnificat, with a praise of rejoicing for God's fulfilled promises of salvation. Look again at verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers and to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now what's Mary talking about here? Mary is talking about God's fulfilled promises to his people. Promises that she is recognizing have begun to be fulfilled in the angel of the Lord's revelation to her that she would give birth to the Savior, the Messiah, who had been promised. And Mary cites two specific examples of where God had promised this blessing to the people of Israel. Number one, she cites Abraham. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. 1,900 years before the coming of Jesus Christ, God came to Abraham and God made promises to Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and I, to him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Friends, God makes three promises to Abraham here. God promises Abraham, number one, I'm sending you to a foreign land, to a promised land. This will be your land, Abraham. 1,900 years before Jesus Christ, God promised the land of Israel to Abraham and the Jewish people. Friends, understand a lot of this nonsense you're reading on social media today about Israel being an occupying country and that's baloney. Israel was given to the Jewish people by God 1,900 years before Jesus. Not only that, it was given to Israel by God before there was even an Arab race on the earth. And not only that, it was given to Israel by God 3,800 years before Islam even became a religion invented by the false prophet Muhammad. 
The land of Israel is God's land, the land of God's people, the Jewish people. That's history. That's truth. And so God promises Israel and Abraham the land of Israel. Then he promises Abraham, I'm going to make your name great, and you're going to be the father of a great nation. That would be the Jewish people. And then thirdly, he says, through you, Abraham, all the nations of the Lord are going to be, of, of the world are going to be blessed. Now, how would that happen? It would happen because it was going to be through Abraham's descendants that the Messiah would come. And the Messiah would open up the possibility of salvation for all people, Jew and Gentile alike. And Mary recognizes that God is in the midst of fulfilling this promise through her, through the child that's conceived in her womb. But then Mary cites another promise, God's promises to our fathers, to Abraham's offspring, the Jewish people. I don't know if you've, you've heard the news yet, but this Christmas season, we've been giving a book out as a gift to you from the church. Lee Strobel's The Case for Christmas. It's available out in our foyer. If you haven't gotten a copy yet, please pick one up. But it's a great book, a journalist investigating the claims of Christmas and Christianity. And in this book, Lee Strobel cites that in the Old Testament, there are over four dozen major prophecies pointing to Jesus as the Messiah prophecies fulfilled in Jesus. That's what Mary's talking about here when she talks about God's promises to our fathers and Abraham's offspring. It's the prophecies that God had told Abraham and the Jewish people of the coming of the Messiah now being fulfilled. Friends, you need to understand our God is a promise-keeping God. God had promised that the Messiah was coming and now he's fulfilling those promises here through the announcement he's given to Mary. And understand, friends, we can have hope and trust and confidence in God because he is a promise in keeping God. And he has kept nearly all of his messianic promises. And I say nearly all because of those promises he hasn't yet kept. Those are promises yet to be fulfilled when Jesus comes a second time. You know there's going to be another advent, don't you? We're going to have another Advent celebration, a second coming, when Jesus comes again. But friends, understand something. When Jesus comes again, no one's going to miss it. When Jesus comes again, it's going to be announced by a trumpet blast from heaven that's going to be heard around the world. And he's not going to come as some little humble baby in a manger. He's going to be coming on a white horse with the armies of heaven, and he is going to once and for all time judge the world of sin and evil. And friends, at that coming, you're going to want to make sure you're on his side. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Friends, you've got to understand this morning, we're all going to bow before Jesus. The question is, are you going to bow before Jesus as the judge of your sins or Jesus as the justifier of your sins? You see, Christmas is about so much more than just a star and shepherds and wise men and a cute little baby in a manger. Christmas is ultimately about God's plan of salvation for you and for me. A salvation promised, a salvation fulfilled, a salvation that will one day be fully realized when Jesus Christ returns. Friends, are you looking forward to that day with great joy? 
I remember when I was a little boy, my dad, he used to travel a lot. He was a Christian apologist and evangelist, and he was typically on the road about half the time each year. So he would be gone for two or three weeks at a time, sometimes on his foreign travels. And these were back in the days before we had cell phones and text messages for instant communication. And we would go days, sometimes weeks, without hearing from my dad. But then we would get a phone call. And it would be my dad on the other end from somewhere around the world. And it was so great to hear my dad's voice. And my dad, he would always end those conversations with the same words. I'll be home soon, pal. I'll be home soon. Friends, I hung on to those words with great hope. And I trusted those words because I knew my dad always kept his promises. And friends, we have a God in heaven who is absolutely trustworthy. And our God in heaven has promised us, I am coming again soon. Friends, I pray you're rejoicing in that promise. And I pray that that promise gives you great hope. Because when Jesus comes again, we're going to celebrate an advent like no other. And when Jesus comes again, he's going to usher in a Christmas that will never end. And so we join with God's people around the world and throughout history, and we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for the joy that is ours at Christmas. Joy rooted in the hope of our salvation. And we thank you for the example of that joy that we see here so clearly in Mary's song as Mary, too, acknowledged her need for a Savior and your exaltation of those who are humble of heart and trust in you to bring us redemption and justification and new life with God. We thank you, Lord, for the good work that you do in our lives when we trust in you by faith. We thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the transformation that that can bring in all of our hearts. Lord, I pray that that is a source of rejoicing for each and every one of us. And Lord, we know that you've also promised you're coming again. And we look forward to that day with great joy and anticipation. That second advent, that Christmas that will never end. That eternity when we as your people will stand in your presence singing a thousand hallelujahs, acknowledging you as our great God and Savior. Jesus, I just pray if there's anybody here today who hasn't put their trust in you, that they might receive the free gift of your amazing grace this Christmas and know the joy that comes with having you transform our hearts and give us new life. So Lord, we worship you this morning. We praise you and we ask you to move in our hearts. And again, if anyone here needs to put their trust in you, may they cry out to you this morning and say, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior this Christmas. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Spirit. Amen. Amen.